you find it helpful to have your Bible open at Luke chapter 1 as we consider this closing section of the chapter. John the Baptist has been born. He's going to have a very special purpose in God's plans. He will be the one who will come out of that desert that he's gone into, verse 80, and he will be the one making ready a people prepared for the Lord. And he's just been born. And in another six months, Mary's time will come for her to deliver her baby. So we're actually six months before the birth of Christ at this point. Now the birth of a baby, of course, is always a very joyous event. But the birth of this baby to Elizabeth was that little bit more special, a little bit more wonderful. Now in, in case you weren't with us a few weeks ago, in case you're not quite sure of how all this story hangs together, Elizabeth is a relative of Mary, the mother of Jesus. And Elizabeth and her husband Zacharias are elderly and they are without any children. But nine months ago, as recorded in the opening verses of Luke chapter 1, when Zacharias, who is a priest, and he was serving in the temple in Jerusalem, an angel appeared to him, Gabriel. And we have Gabriel's words recorded there from verse 13. Your wife Elizabeth will bear a son. You'll call his name John. You'll have joy and gladness. Many will rejoice at his birth. He will be great in the sight of the Lord. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. To make ready a people prepared for the Lord. He's going to have a very special job to do as God's prophet to his people, Israel. Now understandably, when all of this took place inside the temple precincts, Zacharias was completely taken aback by all of this and he really struggles to believe all that's being said to him. And so from that moment, God makes him unable to speak until the time when the baby is born. It's now six months uh, after that event when Mary comes and visits Elizabeth. And now this elderly lady, long past the age of childbearing, she safely delivered this baby boy. And understandably, it's the talk of the town. In fact, it's gone beyond the town. Every town in all of that region is talking about this boy that has been born to Zacharias and Elizabeth. And of course, once any baby has been born, the next question on many people's lips is, so what have you called him? What's his name? People were just the same back then. It's a very human story. And it's the eighth day, and according to Old Testament law, it's the day when this little boy has to be circumcised, and that is also the day when he would formally be named. And everyone is in eager anticipation. And they all assume that this baby is to be named after his father, Zacharias. But Elizabeth, against tradition, insists that his name is to be called John. Well, there's no Johns in the family, and that's unusual. 
and they're not quite sure whether they should just take Elizabeth's word for it. So they try to see if Zacharias can shed any light on the subject, but of course everybody in the town knows that since that event that took place in Jerusalem all those months ago, Zacharias hasn't been able to speak, so they hand him a tablet so they can write it down. And he does so. His name is John. And at that moment, his mouth is released and he's able to speak. And we can just imagine all the things that Zacharias has been bursting to say for the last nine months all come flowing out of his mouth. And he's praising God for all that's taken place. And it's clear from verses 65 and 66, everybody can see that this is something very unusual, something very wonderful has taken place here. People are talking about it and people are going home and they're thinking about it and they're lying in bed at night. All of these things are running through their minds. Something very special is happening here. And the hand of the Lord was with John. And this eight-day-old baby is going to be John's special messenger to Israel. As after thousands of years, the countdown to the Saviour will finally reach five, four, three, two, one. He's here. John will have the glorious privilege of pointing to him at the River Jordan and announcing him to the whole world as Christ embarks upon his ministry. It's nearly time. But time for what? Time for what? Well, Zacharias will tell us what it's time for in his anthem of praise. Note carefully, Luke is very careful to tell us Zacharias is filled with the Holy Spirit. Zacharias is speaking the words of God. And so the words that are coming out of the mouth of this man are 100% truth. There'd be no doubt about that. And what Zacharias gives us is a tale of two kingdoms. Are you listening? Well, what does he tell us first of all? Here's the first lesson from what Zacharias has to say. God's promises are as good as done. That's lesson number one. God's promises are as good as done. Note carefully the language that Zacharias uses. He does not say that God will visit and redeem his people. He does not say God is going to do it. He says God has done it. God has redeemed his people and raised up this horn of salvation for us because when God gives you a promise, you may consider it done and you may speak of it as if it is done. Look at what Zacharias says 
in verses 70 and 72 and 73. As God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets to perform the mercy promised to our fathers, to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham. This is a very important factor in the Christian faith. This is an important thing for you as a Christian in terms of assurance of faith. Zacharias has not yet seen or heard of Christ's birth. Indeed, it's yet to occur. Zacharias has no explicit knowledge of Calvary in the way that you do with the New Testament in front of you. Zacharias does not have available to him the clarity of the doctrines of the gospel that God will make known through his apostles. He has none of those things. And yet he speaks of God's redemption as something done. Done. Why does he do that? How can he do that? Because you see, it is sufficient that God has purposed it. God has decreed it. And God has promised it. And because these promises come from God, it is so certain that it will happen. Zacharias can speak of it as done. You see, living in the reality of all that God has promised plays a really huge part in your assurance and it plays a really huge part in experiencing the peace of mind and the contentment of soul that God wants you to have in Christ. Because anything that God has promised is as good as done. Now, there will be times in your life when your current circumstances might give an appearance of betraying the things that are promised to you in the Bible. I'm really finding it hard to believe these things that God has promised to me in this circumstance. There'll be occasions in, in your own life and you become fully aware that you do not measure up to what's expected of one who follows Christ. There'll be times when the things promised don't appear to be the reality. But you mustn't allow circumstances and appearances to rob you of your faith in God or to rob you of the hope that you have because your hope is not in how things appear to you. Your hope lies in all that God has promised. You see, Christian faith and hope rests upon things which are settled in God in eternity, aren't they? Not on how things appear to be working out today. 
These things are settled in God in eternity. And the mark of a believer is that it's those certain promises that bring assurance of faith and hope. And how, how does that work out? Well, just look at Zacharias. It's the Holy Spirit who's convinced Zacharias of these things. It's the Holy Spirit who convinces you. That you know these things are true. And today it doesn't feel like it, but they're still just as true. But this circumstance is so hard, but those things are still true. Because God has promised them. And his promises are as good as, as if they're done. Look at it this way. There's a significant part of your salvation that is yet to be. There are still promises that you don't yet experience and know. There are things still to come. The reality of those things will be revealed and fulfilled and experienced at the coming of Christ when he returns. But you've no doubts, have you? Because it's promised. And you know that even today in him, they are yours. I hope you do. Because God has promised. Paul didn't say, there will be a crown of righteousness laid up for me. Paul didn't say there might be a crown of righteousness laid up for me. Paul said there is, there is. Why? Because his faith and hope lay on the promises of God. When God has promised, it's as good as done. There is. There is. And you see, this in very large part is what it means to walk by faith and not by sight. Trying to live your life only by what you can see, only by what you can touch, and how all those things make you feel, well, Look at the world around you. Look at the people out there and that's how they live. They live by what they can see. They live by what they can touch and by how all of that makes them feel. What do you see? Chaos. Violence. Bitterness. Brokenness. Regret. Disappointment in abundance it was from this that Christ came into the world to save you so that you can live your life trusting trusting knowing all that is promised you in Christ Jesus that's what it means to be a Christian. What a place of release. What a place of relief. What a place of rest that is. 
a very wise man who once graced the streets of Liverpool, J.C. Ryle, puts it like this. Your safety is secured by promise. The world, the flesh, the devil, they shall never prevail against any believer. Your acquittal at the last day is secured by promise. You shall not come into condemnation, but you shall be presented spotless before the Father's throne. Your final glory is secured by promise. Your Saviour shall come again the second time, as surely as he came the first, to gather his saints together and to give them a crown of righteousness. Let us be persuaded of these promises. Let us embrace them and never let them go. They will never fail us. God's word is never broken. He is not a man that he should lie. We have the seal of Christ's blood to assure us that what God has promised, God will perform. Do you live in God's kingdom of never failing promise? There's no place like it. Second lesson. Salvation and redemption from God for his people. Salvation and redemption from God for his people. Blessed is the Lord God of Israel for he's visited and redeemed his people. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David that we should be saved from our enemies, delivered from the hand of them. You'll be called prophet of the highest. You'll go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins through the tender mercy of our God and so on. Time and time again, the Bible uses language to convey the truth that it was a very definite and known people whom God in Christ came to save. Let's ask two questions. Did Jesus die to save everyone without exception? Everyone in the world who has ever lived are all saved by Christ's death. Yes or no, right or wrong? There's no way you can come to that conclusion. To give you one example, Jesus himself, for example, taught that there will be many who think that they are part of th this redeemed people. But Jesus will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. Jesus did not die to save everyone without exception. You cannot come to that conclusion when you read the Bible. Well, in that case, maybe he just saved, he, he died to save no one in particular, 
but just to make salvation a possibility. Did he? No. He came to save his people from their sins. That's the word and the text of Scripture. He visited and redeemed his people. He knows them. Jesus said, they are the ones the Father has given to me. And he's come to them. And he's come for them. And he's lived for them a perfect life that he might die their death. Why must Jesus die? Why must Jesus die? Well, what is a man or woman like? What is a boy or a girl like in the state in which they were born? Why, why does anybody need this salvation? Why does anybody need redeeming? Well, what does Zacharias say in his song? How does he describe it? How does he describe these people who are in need of salvation and redemption? He describes them as sitting in darkness and in the shadow of death. You see it there? To give light, verse 79, to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death. Are you sitting in darkness? Separated from the love and life of God? Are you sitting in the shadow of death? Is God's condemnation hanging over you? I've got good news for you. The light of the world has come. For you. What is it? that places all men and women and all boys and girls in this position of complete hopelessness and helplessness, sitting in darkness and in the shadow of death. What is it that puts them there? It's their sin. A proud and stubborn heart, self-willed, rejecting God, dismissing God, rebuffing God, refusing to submit to the authority of God. A heart that says, I decide for myself my own version of truth. No one gets to define truth for me. I'll decide. A heart that says, I decide what is right and what is wrong. I decide what is good and what is bad. I decide what is acceptable or not acceptable. A heart that says, I'm accountable to no one but me. And as long as I don't interfere with anyone else, no one gets to interfere with me. That's sin. But the Bible says that people like that are sitting in darkness and in the shadow of death. But I've got good news for you. God has raised up a strong, that's what the word horn signifies in that verse there. God has raised up a strong salvation to save you, to redeem you, for the remission of your sins, to deal with all of your sins. Well, what on earth does all that mean? 
Well, the sins which hang as a life sentence over your head in the darkness and which condemn you for all eternity, they may be pardoned, they may be forgiven, they may be wiped clean. That which condemns you has been laid upon Christ at the cross where he will die the death that you deserve to die. He took that darkness. He took that shadow of death from you and bore it for you at Calvary so that you can be brought out of that darkness, so that you can be brought out of that place of death and be placed into his light to receive his life. Darkness, death, that's one kingdom. Light and life, that's the other. It's a tale of two kingdoms. Which one are you in? This is what Christmas is all about. In God's tender mercy, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the day spring from on high, the dawn of the light, he's visited us to provide salvation and redemption from God for his people. You might be thinking to yourself, but am I one of his people? What if I'm not? How can I know? Wrong questions. Not invalid questions, but the wrong ones. That's not the question to ask. Here's the question, just one. Are you, right now, sitting in darkness and in the shadow of death? That's the question. What's the answer? That's the only question you need to consider. Are you, right now, sitting in darkness and in the shadow of death? Because for you, the light of the world has come. God's strong salvation is come into the world. And through the Lord Jesus Christ and the tender mercy that God displays to sinners through him, you may know his salvation. You may know the forgiveness of your sins. And you can leave this place this morning at peace with God and at peace within yourself and convinced I do belong to him. I am one of his people. Confess your sins. Turn from your sins. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put all your hope and trust in him and in all the promises of his word, and you will be saved. Final lesson. Number three, holiness and righteousness, your service to God. Verses 74 and 75, that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, 
in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. Becoming a Christian isn't just about being forgiven and saved. It's about a complete transformation, a complete turnaround. You're taken out of one kingdom and you're gloriously placed in another and your whole life changes. You're taken from being under the dominion of sin and Satan and you're placed under the kingship and the lordship of Christ. And God no no longer looks upon you as unacceptable in the filth of your sin, but he receives you as one made new and washed and made clean with the blood and righteousness of Christ. You were a slave to sin, but now you're a slave to God and to righteousness and to holiness. You used to run after sinful things, but now you run after godliness. And all of these things you accept gladly, joyfully, Because the Christian is just overwhelmed by the mercy and the grace that God has shown them in Christ. Overwhelmed by such redemption and salvation. Overwhelmed by the promises which now are yours in Christ. Overwhelmed by the love that drew salvation's plan. Overwhelmed by the love which brought it down to man. It's a tale of two kingdoms. To which one do you belong? 